Hello and welcome to the Antifada. This is Andy. This is Sean. And we're doing a special uh, super crossover episode today. Antifada. Super, super, super cross, Parallax cross, views. Cross. Troll it cults. History hit, is a weapon. History is a weapon. All under one roof. One Skype roof. And we're going to be talking about something that a lot of podcasters have referenced recently with the new uh, fascination with all the conspiracy theories turning out to be true. The original true conspiracy theory, which is Operation Gladio. Um, and just as, as uh, an example of, of how true this conspiracy theory is, uh, Paul Joseph Watson wrote an article for InfoWars PJW. saying, conspiracy theories are true. Here's some examples. And the one example is, uh, like the main example is Operation Gladio, which is, uh, and, you know, propaganda due and everything we'll be talking about flowing from that, which is not an example of uh, cultural Marxism and Jews controlling the world, but the opposite, a bunch of capitalists and fascists yep. conspiring. And um, mafioso and the Vatican and the CIA. We'll, we'll give it all. We'll give, we'll a lot, give all the info. A lot to go on here, but we are really psyched to be working on this episode with our brother in a parapolitical investigation, <laughs> J.G. Michael. Hey, I thought you were going to call me J.D. Vance like you guys did on the July episode. <laughs> uh, we, we discussed whether we should do that before the podcast, but Andy decided that he shouldn't troll you again, so we won't do. You had no hillbilly elegy shit here. We won't even reference it. Yeah, well, I'm, I I'm glad. I, I wanted to say I'm glad you guys had me on to talk about this. I find Gladio really interesting, um, although I, I find the way right-wingers talk about it to be... Um, a load of BS, like most, you know, like the way most right-wingers talk about pretty much anything that's parapolitical. Um, I think they usually have a horribly wrong, grotesquely uh, misconstrued idea of what the reality usually is. So I'm not even familiar with the right-wing framing of Gladio. Um, do, do you want to nutshell that before we get into the truth? Yeah, I don't I don't even know if they have like a framing of it. They'll just like reference it in passing where it'll be like real conspiracies, Gladio, the USS Liberty, MK Ultra. But they, Operation they Northwoods. Operation Northwoods is a big one. Uh, that was um, revealed by James Bamford, who uh, is a historian of the NSA. He's actually a good dude, um, whereas people like Alex Jones just sort of take other people's research. And then, like I said, they grotesquely distort things and um, – it's interesting because I think a lot of the figures we'll be talking about in this episode, uh, like the Dulles brothers, um, James Angleton, they're actually closer to the Alex Jones worldview than we are. So the uh, conspirators that we'll be talking about are actually uh, really in line with the you know prison Pauls of the world. My understanding of how the right-wingers um, engage with this material, which is well-documented by parliaments in uh, Italy, Belgium, France, and obviously by news services and academics, the way that they confront it is by playing up the Freemasonry angle, which there is a part of that. Andy mentioned propaganda due, and that's an old-fashioned conspiracy going back to you know Edmund Burke and the French Revolution. I think they also get a lot out of the fact that the Vatican plays a role in this period because it ties into their weird satanic, uh, pedophilic, sex orgy, uh, elite, triple parentheses, um, you know, psychopathic monster narrative. But for us, I think it's important to note that, again, 
tons of people have done a ton of work doing this, and it is not the uh, the actors that the right wing would have us think it is. It is people tied directly to state power, and also people tied directly to capitalist power. And that's the important thing for us to ground that from the left. Yeah, well, yeah and I, I wanted to comment real quick on that, mm -hmm. if I could. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Andy, but um, yeah, I, I just wanted to say, with regards to uh, propaganda due and uh, the whole Freemason thing, um, what they don't tell you about the P2 is that it was um, basically a renegade uh, Masonic lodge right. by, run by uh, Licio Gelli. Um, and I may be butchering his name, but it, it wasn't like... Licio Gelli. Right. <laughs> but it, it make wasn't, sure you it put your like hand a, into your mouth when you say it. Well, it, it wasn't like a normal Masonic lodge. And um, it's interesting, too, that you bring up the... Um, the whole French Revolution deal, um, because that's where a lot of the Illuminati conspiracy right. theories come from. But the real conspiracy is that the whole idea of the Illuminati being behind the French Revolution is really the conspiracy itself. It was all um, propaganda by the sort of Catholic establishment of the time. Um, they were trying to scare the plebs away from revolution by saying, oh, the shadowy group is behind it. Um, and of course, we end up getting Illuminati panics here in uh, America uh, later on in, in New England, uh, shortly after the founding. So I, it's weird. I tend to think a lot of times, despite being associated with conspiracy and parapolitics uh, through my podcast, Parallax Views, that um, conspiracy theories are themselves the conspiracy sometimes. And also, um, although I like parapolitics, I don't consider myself what the anti-fascist researcher Chip Berlay calls um, conspiracism, which is the... Uh, basically turning conspiracy theory into a worldview like everything's a conspiracy theory right. as we see with all the uh, mass shootings now everyone's saying oh it was uh, manchurian candidates mk ultra i don't really believe in that stuff i think criminal conspiracies uh like the bcci banking scandal um some of what gary webb wrote about in the dark alliance series relating to iran contra and uh the drug war i think that stuff is uh you know worth talking about but you know I don't think everything is a conspiracy theory. So that'll piss off some of my fans. So, sorry <laughs> well, for cursing there. I think what, what we have in common, what we have in common is uh, in terms of what we read to research and try to understand this stuff. And what we're going to try to present is that we look at the facts as they've been uh, uncovered and reported by, you know, parliamentary commissions and by certain journalists and try to, you know, not try to fill in too many blanks. Um, and hopefully we'll talk about the Pasolini letter in, in reference to that. But we should we should get, uh, before we go too far into the method, get into the context of the episode, which is the, the situation in Europe at the end of World War II. Uh, you think you're ready to, to go for that? I think Sean's going to take that section. Yeah, can I add something real quick first? Sure. Um, this is going to be a very, very interesting episode, given what's happening in Italy right now with um, the, the troubles with uh, Salvini and the far right over there. And also in July, there was uh, a big news story that came out. Uh, the Guardian wrote about it, along with The New York Times and others. And the headline was uh, Italian arrests linked to neo-fascists after stash of weapons uncovered. Um, I believe the party was one of the people involved was candidate for Forza Nuova, a party, mm -hmm. and they um, they had missiles, you know, a weapons stash. So one wonders how they got those weapons. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's relevant today. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. 
and in the United States as well. So this topic of Gladio, we're going to be moving and ranging all over the globe. Uh, we're also going to be ranging across time. But in order to situate us, to put us in a context, it's important, as Andy said, to look at the tail end of the Second World War and then the years directly after that. The Everybody knows that the United States and Britain uh, were allies with the Soviet Union against the Nazis. Everybody knows that uh, the good guys won. By that, I mean Stalin. He won. He beat the Nazis, which was great. The issue that faced planners, mostly in the West, but also obviously in the Soviet Union as well, is that with the defeat of, the, of Germany, of uh, the Nazi powers, and obviously, of course, uh, Mussolini and his fascist regime, what sort of world was going to arise? What sort of arrangements and institutions would we have coming out of this humongous, bloody conflagration of this uh, world-changing war? So... Great Britain, of course, had been the indisputable world champion of um, killing people and taking their shit for many years before this. It became clear to American planners, and I think grudgingly to, to European capitalists uh, as well, that the United States was going to come out of this war in the driver's seat. It wasn't merely that the United States' economy had grown significantly. It wasn't merely that we had created an incredibly productive and large uh, military uh, industry, uh, along with tons of other capital goods. It was also the basic fact that the United States and Canada were the only major powers within the Second World War to not be literally destroyed. If you look at productive capacity across Europe, something like 45% of the factories and the bridges and the highways and the railroads had been destroyed in the war, this brutal total war. And so... The United States and its allies had to figure out a way to come out of this so that we wouldn't fall back into what had been happening in the 1930s, which is a Great Depression. So they learned a lot of lessons from that, economic lessons and also political lessons. When you get to 1943 and 1944, you start to see some serious discussions about what the post-war is going to look like. There's a very important conference you may have heard of called Bretton Woods, which is the name of a resort in Vermont. I hear it's very nice this time of the year. Uh, all the world leaders came together to design the financial system of the globe after this period. They didn't want, again, to happen what happened in the 1920s and 1930s with competitive devaluations of currency, with beggar-thy-neighbor policies, with uh, protectionism and tariffs, and uh, growing autarky among the major powers. So they made sure that the post-war would be a free trade world within the West. So in order to do that, they created all sorts of institutions and arrangements to make sure that goods could be traded across borders easily. They also wanted to make sure that the massive speculative investments that you saw leading up to the Great Depression and before that did not occur. So they really cut down on the power of finance. They also saw to it that in this system, the United States would be the dominant player in terms of currency, right? So the dollar would be the global reserve currency. Everything would be pegged to the dollar that made sure that everybody had to trade in dollars, essentially. So the United States would be this kind of stable influence on the world. Now, why am I talking about that? I'm talking about that because what that sets up is a humongous sphere of influence, which the United States is at the center. Of course, you have the U.S. and Great Britain, its junior partner, and the rest of Europe and elsewhere in Asia and Africa. But on the other side, you have the Soviet Union. So as these planners left Bretton Woods with this plan on how to arrange the global economy, 
by 46, 47, 48, it became clear that not only were they trying to erase the capitalist economy, they were trying to confront the growing power of the Soviet Union under Stalin, which had taken over large parts of Eastern and Central Europe. So when this Cold War arises, uh, when the Berlin Wall goes up, when you start to see proxy wars happening throughout Europe, the United States starts to combine this economic hegemony that it created with a real serious political hegemony. That is to say, bringing all of the different capitalist nations under its umbrella in a thing called NATO, the North Atlantic uh, Trade Organization. When it does this, it ensures that an entire block of Western capitalist powers, quote-unquote democratic powers, uh, were going to be confronting en masse the forces of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact, which was their equivalent of NATO, and that um, you were going to essentially have a political proxy war, an economic war, and a war unlike really any war that we had seen in world history. An interesting uh, organization arises in 1948-49 as well. It's called the Central Intelligence Agency. This, of course, uh, comes out of the OSS, which had been its precursor in the Second World War, where the United States used covert operations. That was the group that Marcuse was a part of, right? Marcuse? Yeah. That's, um, it's, the, it's the predecessor to... Um, so remember when you said that um, Assad was uh, a murderer on Twitter and the people said that you're part of this shadowy organization? That was the precursor to that. You're, uh, as a CIA asset, you should know that. So the... Um, so the CIA arises as a way for the United States to exert soft power and also to create um, political coups across Europe and the world. And, of course, the CIA and NATO are crucial to understanding why something called Gladio arises. Gladio being the code word for a stay-behind network that's created after the Second World War, that's built in anticipation of a Soviet invasion of the West, which a lot of planners and a lot of military people saw coming and were afraid of. And what Gladio would do is it would create weapons caches all over these different states of Europe where partisans behind the lines when the Soviets attacked could begin to communicate with one another, could do sabotage, and could uh, you know, basically fight back against the Soviets. The bad partisans. Not our partisan. Yeah, not, not the, uh, the resistance we're talking about, uh, jerks. So anyways, that's kind of like the, the stage, I think, for understanding these different structures that arise during this time. And the real crucial role that the United States plays in this, not just with, of course, Bretton Woods and the World Bank and the IMF, but also with NATO, which the United States is the head of, essentially. And then also with the CIA, which coordinates across Europe and the world all of these different smaller powers, all of their covert operations, all of their attempts to not only clamp down on the foreign threat of the Soviet Union, but importantly, the indigenous threats within these countries of homegrown communist Antifa terrorists who are trying to destroy freedom and uh, free speech all over, the, all over Europe in places like Italy and Greece and France and elsewhere. So that's my little spiel. You guys can take that from where... So I guess for my segment, uh, what I'm most interested in talking about, I sort of referenced earlier how um, I'm not, I, I'm interested in criminal conspiracies, but not conspiracism, uh, or this idea that everything is, is explained by sort of a conspiratorial worldview. And I think it ties into a lot of what we're going to talk about with Gladio and with the CIA 
and uh, with all these different sort of anti-communist plots. And I think in a lot of ways we can trace this back to uh, two brothers who are sort of the uh, masters of statecraft in the 20th century. Their names are John Foster and Alan Dulles. Um, and John Foster and Alan Dulles, uh, of course, the, the namesake of the Dulles Airport, they're very important figures within the history of the CIA. They're, you know, the prototypical cold warriors, uh, so to speak. And the thing to note about them is that they're both uh, very Christian, hyper-religious, and extremely, extremely conservative. The book about the Dulles brothers that I would recommend, there's actually two books, uh, The Devil's Chessboard by David Talbot, who helped found Salon, and uh, also Stephen Kinzer's the Brothers, uh, which is a very academic, dry sort of uh, look into the Dulles Brothers. What you have to understand about the Dulles Brothers is that after World War II, their main focus is how do we take out the communists? Um, they were even, according to David Talbot in The Devil's Chessboard, willing to aid Nazis um, escaping the... Uh, you know, German lines, so to speak, just in order to fight the communists. Um, and that's done through, I believe, Operation Sunrise. So the Dulles brothers have a very paranoid worldview, as Stephen Kinzer notes in The Brothers. And they essentially see the world in a very black and white way. Uh, there's good guys and bad guys. And the commies, they're the bad guys. Joe, you know, can Germany, I stop you? Can I stop yeah. you for one second? A fascinating thing about the Dulles brothers and um, others in the OSS and then the CIA later, uh, for me, has always been that if you see the demographics of not just the agents, but also the main leadership of the CIA in its early period, it is almost completely white shoe um, financial law firms uh, based out of Wall Street. And that is not a conspiracy. The Dulles brothers and others were directly tied to finance capital in this period. And they used the sort of connections that an international financier would have in order to not only create fronts to go around the world, but very directly kind of work in capital's interest across the entire globe. So I find that fascinating that, you know, these are almost all bankers at this point. Yeah, they actually, I believe um, both Dulles brothers, or at least Alan, worked with uh, I.G. Farben, who were heavily oh, cool. involved with the Nazis. Yeah, well, not exactly cool. That's kind of disturbing, <laughs> yeah. but... That was a sarcastic cool, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, the Dulles brothers uh, essentially have this worldview of uh, American hegemony uh, by any means necessary, anything to take out the communists, even if that means aiding... Nazis, even if that means uh, stuff like MK Ultra, um, which they were heavily involved in, you know, these experiments um, in, you know, quote unquote mind control in which they were dosing um, unwitting test subjects with LSD. Uh, and a lot of people... uh, setting up Charlie Manson as the murderer of the Ta La Bianca killings when Manson was completely innocent. It was just an MK Ultra black op, as we all know <laughs> from listening to the Antifada. Sorry, go on. Well, yeah, I, I mean, the MK Ultra stuff is fascinating because uh, all, all the jokes aside about Project Monarch and uh, 
mind-controlled sex slaves that come about in the conspiracy culture later on. The real MK Ultra is like massive human rights violations. So the Dulles brothers, in a way, are almost these... David Talbot refers to Alan Dulles as basically literally a sociopath. Uh, these were two characters that were willing to do anything uh, to make sure that America's power was maintained. And they were, you know, almost like John Birchers in their view of communism. Uh, they even aided in the coups in Guatemala and, of course, in Operation Ajax, which uh, was the 1953 coup in Iran in which we basically overthrew the democratically elected leader of Iran, Mossadegh. But there was no blowback from that, you know, 25 years later. So the CIA did a good job and uh, there was never an Iranian revolution in 1979. So I don't know what you're complaining about. And there was no genocide in Guatemala that lasted yeah, no. for 30 years. No, it's fine. <laughs> well, I guess uh, this also leads us to uh, another character who's very central in all of this is uh, James Angleton. Yes. James Jesus Angleton to you. Thank you very much. Is it is it James Jesus or James Jesus? I don't know. Uh, Jesus. He's like, I think he's part uh, Latino. So, yeah. Sorry. He probably, I apologize he probably thought he was listeners. a Jesus figure because he was like saving America from the evil commies. Right. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting because um, Angleton, like the Dulles brothers, is basically a hyper conspiratorial uh, figure like I mean in the way he views the world uh, there's that famous quote um, let me see if I can find it here real quick while you while you find that a, f a fun little fact was that uh, during the second world war a guy by the name of Ezra Pound who was an American poet from the Midwest um, moved to Mussolini's Italy in order to be closer to his favorite ideology of this rising fascism. So Ezra Pound actually lived in Rapallo and wrote increasingly anti-Semitic and anti-banker type poems. And Ezra Pound, whose father was a capitalist in Italy, actually became friends with Ezra Pound and picked up a lot of his uh, anti-finance, anti-Jewish, kind of pro-fascist sympathies uh, during the Second World War until, of course, Mussolini became an enemy and then he had to eject him. But Ezra Pound... James Angleton, they were homeboys. Well, I, I was going to get to that, but the, the quoting question was, uh, deception is a state of mind and the mind of the state, um, which is like a really, really creepy little quote, isn't it? I mean, I think it's, it's important to point out that not only is uh, Angleton, of course, a super important person in the history of the CIA, that paranoid worldview and what he ends up doing with counterintelligence, basically leading all sorts of bizarre investigations and undermining a lot of uh, people and things, as you said. But Angleton, too, is central to understanding the history of post-war Italy, because Angleton's early influence was strongest felt in Italy. And as we'll see with Gladio, um, Italy is very much kind of the epicenter of this Cold War tension that exists between uh, NATO on the one hand and not just the Soviet Union, but also just indigenous Italian uh, Communist Party members. Angleton sort of has how people view him historically within the CIA. There's a pro-Angleton camp and an anti-Angleton camp. A lot of people think that the way Angleton approached things like uh, Russian moles uh, within you know, America was like way too paranoid. This whole like we have to look at every little letter and do a textual analysis 
uh, it was seen as too paranoid, and it brought him into conflict with, uh, you know, William Colby. So uh, some people look at William Colby as having put the kibosh on James Angleton. And, you know, in a way, I guess you could see uh, Colby as being uh, the the heroic figure that sort of took power away from Angleton. He actually um, terminated the uh, previously mentioned lingual program. He said, all this information you're collecting is creating a needle in a haystack scenario. It doesn't accomplish anything. But uh, it's interesting because even Colby um, is an insane Cold Warrior. Uh, there's an operation known as the Phoenix program, uh, that was basically a program against the Viet Cong that essentially involved, uh, extraordinary rendition, torture, uh, just absolute brutality, murder, uh, extrajudicial murder of, uh, Vietnamese citizens. Any, if you were suspected of being part of the Viet Cong and, you know, you had people involved with the Phoenix program knocking on your door. Uh, they didn't ask questions. You were basically shot dead. And uh, I would recommend a book, uh, The Phoenix Program, by Douglas Valentine for anyone interested in that. Uh, Douglas Valentine, it's it's a heavily, heavily noted, footnoted book. And it provides a really good view of Colby's sort of insane actions within the CIA. Oddly enough, that book was uh, trashed by the New York Times back in the 80s, although these days I hear more and more people basically say, yeah, Valentine was right. It really isn't a conspiratorial um, tome. It's, I mean, it's not theory, so to speak. It, it's something that was very real and very brutal and sort of prestiges uh, everything we see now uh, since the Bush era with extraordinary rendition, uh, torture programs, uh, yada, yada, yada. So I, I guess in closing, we, we see that the CIA sort of has a very brutal approach to anything involving the Cold War, um, whether you're talking about the Dulles Brothers, Angleton, or uh, William Colby. So all these characters are doing highly illegal, unethical things uh, to combat what they see as the communist menace. Well, and I, I want to add one more thing to that. When we look at Italy in particular— and we're going to get into Italy and Gladio. You know, I interviewed a while back uh, the investigative journalist Alexander Steele, who was an investigative journalist that wrote about Silvio Berlusconi, uh, who is just a bunga, monstrous. Bunga, bunga. <laughs> I, I, I laugh, but I also just find Berlusconi to be a horrible figure, especially as an Italian-American. It makes me ashamed to be an Italian-American uh, but, uh, you know, Alexander um, was actually, I believe, sued by Berlusconi for doing journalism on, on him. And, you know, it's interesting because what Alexander has always said to me is that Italy was a country of two churches. The first church is the Catholic Church, and the other was the Communist Party. You know, communism in Italy was very, very strong. And that is how we get into Operation Gladio yeah. and the strategy of tension. And parenthetically, for all the haters out there, the left is a church. Thank you very much. And uh, JG just proved that there through history. So, you know, you could STFU now. And like most churches, it's fading away and this God <laughs> has failed us. It's got schisms and shit. But Yeah, Gladio, Gladio, Gladio. So, um, 
Gladio is the code name for the specific stay behind network set up by the by NATO and by the CIA in Italy. But all through Europe, in all of the major countries, you had these networks that were there in order to, as we'll see, not only you know be a stay behind network in the case of Soviet invasion, but also increasingly be a check on local socialist and communist parties and later the new left. I, I have to correct you on one thing real quick. Please do. All right, so the left isn't a church. Fine. <laughs> well, now, the left is a church, and we're, okay, we're the good. best church out there. But, Hell yeah. Uh, it's important to note that with Gladio, Gladio is the code name specifically in Italy. Um, a lot of the code names for the other countries we don't know about. And also the history of the CIA's involvement is a little bit murky, but we do know about NATO's involvement and we do have a lot of testimony that ties the CIA into this. Uh, sorry for being a little pedantic and nitpicky and technical. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Um, let's, uh, let's jump into it. So Italy, Italy, Italy. As we know, Mussolini was the ur-fascist. He was the first um, reactionary, uber-modernist um, leader that tried to have a right-wing political revolution and succeeded. So in 1944, when the Allies invade uh, Italy and Mussolini's kicked out of power, um, these partisan bands, mostly from the uh, Italian Communist Party, uh, are all throughout Europe. I'm sorry, all throughout Italy, and uh, gaining increasing power. Um, the PCI, which is what the Italian Party uh, Communist Party is in uh, in Italian, we'll use that from here on out. Again, comes out of the war with an immense amount of prestige and power. So one of the very very first things that the CIA does, that the United States does is they basically overturn the Italian election of 1948. They, the United States, using millions and millions of dollars, massive black and white propaganda, and even the creation of the head right-wing opposition party, the Christian Democrats, the United States created this party in order to defeat the communists. The CIA swings this election against the PCI, which would have won, and ensures that a you know, center-right to right-wing government would rule Italy. Now, this was an absolute coup, because by rights, the communists should have won without this interference. But what this does is it sets a stage over the next 40 years in Italy, where, as Andy said before, the left wing was not allowed to come into power. And every time they came close to power, something happened that would knock them back. All of these groups, um, including this, uh, this Masonry League that we're going to talk about, and including these stay-behinds, were, again, there in order to stop an invasion, but more and more because, of course, if you have these right-wing, if you have these partisans, these um, reactionary partisans who are going to stop the communists, who are you going to recruit from? Who would be your best recruit? Well, just like World War II with the communists fighting the fascists, you would want to get right-wing people in order to join these stay-behind networks. Another important group, too, and we shouldn't downplay this, is, of course, organized crime in Italy. In 1944, the United States gave Lucky Luciano a sweetheart deal. He was, of course, of course, the head of the five families in New York, busted him out of prison and sent him to Sicily in order to be an anti-fascist bulwark, in order to keep the docks clear in New York City, in order to move military material, but also to be a friendly ground for the United States. So the U.S. not only puts the right wing back in power, but also takes this old paternalistic 
patriarchal and hierarchical system of organized crime under the mafia and puts them back in the driver's seat at this time and moving forward. And then the last major actor, of course, is the Vatican, right? So we all know that the Vatican is an independent state that is secular but also spiritual that exists in Rome. Uh, the Vatican was a huge player in a largely Catholic country. Tons of funds and tons of influence there. The Vatican was brought on board with this program again to make sure that their greatest threat, which was an atheistic communist movement, would be unable to take power in Italy, break that percentages agreement, and basically wipe off these uh, right-wing elements and create a homegrown radical leftist movement in the country. So... Gladio is a very important, almost the military arm of a larger process, a larger set of organizations spearheaded by the United States to a lesser extent, MI6 in Britain, that basically ensure that Italy would remain, if not a colony of the United States, it would at least remain outside of that Soviet sphere and, uh, of course, open for American influence and investment. And you, you got to uh, mention that the... Uh Lucky Luciano bit that you were uh, speaking about a bit there. You can learn more about that in, um, it's called Operation Underworld. That was the code name, which is a great code name. And I just want to say, read the documents. I have read the documents. <laughs> Infowars. It's a war on for your mind. So uh, it's important to note that uh, the left in, in Italy is the, the PCI and also the Socialist Party, the, the PSI. And Basically, the United States wants to make sure neither of them come into power, although they, they are both massive parties. The, the PCI, I think, had um, about a million members uh, once it was, uh, uh, you know, re-legalized after the war. And at its height, it got about 10 million votes. Um, only the, the French Communist Party, the PCF, was, was a rival, and I believe the Italian party was larger uh, but as a result of this percentages agreement, um, as a result of Stalin basically not wanting to engulf Italy in a civil war, which is what ha was happening in, in Greece, uh, the partisans were effectively disarmed, um, and any insurrectionary strategy was taken off the table in favor of, of parliamentarism. And so the PCI became a parliamentary party seeking uh, reforms, um, uh, gradually becoming less and less linked to the Soviet Union until it became the vanguard of uh, what today is called Eurocommunism. Um, and that's probably a little bit too complicated to get into in the scope of this episode. But, uh, you know, as we get move through the 50s into the 60s, it remains an important opposition party to Christian democracy. Um, but... Uh, it's, it's not it's not combative like you might think like if there's a communist party in like the U.S. Congress you'd think that there'd be like a very combative relationship but it was you know it was uh, it was uh, in in some ways functional but in, in some ways the left and the center were um, you know kind of grinding things to a halt especially by the 70s uh, but to to sort of skip about a decade of history or, or maybe even two decades of history in 1968. Um, young people and workers are getting kind of fed up with how reformist and how ineffective uh, the, the, the left is in Italy. And there, be there begins to be, well, initially major student riots in Rome. Although Gladio, its initial purpose of 
of uh, like armed insurrection against an invading Red Army never comes to uh, the PSI, uh, even though. Uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought because somebody knocked on the door. Let's get. The cops are here. Hold on. Yeah, don't let them in. Um, yeah, we're going to have to pause for a second. Are you there? Good. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. You just want to call me back? Uh, just hang on the line for a second. This okay. might be interesting audio. No. All right, Joe and listeners out there, just to jump back in, the police showed up to where we're recording, uh, claiming that there were gunshots in the building. Uh, Andy, did you hear any gunshots? Andy didn't hear any gunshots. Uh, the officer, the officers were apparently trying to get into the apartment and were very, very upset with me that I wouldn't let them come in to look around, even though I told them no gunshots. So uh, at domestic any rate, gladio. domestic gladio, that's it. So um, sorry, sorry, cops, you can't come in. They asked me why. They're like, oh, you're not going to help me. I said, uh, no, no, no one's been shot. It's fine. He's like, all right, so I'm supposed to come back and you're going to let me know when I can help you. I was like, uh, whatever, man, just just go. We're recording a podcast. So that happened. Uh, domestic Gladio happened. So just a slice of Brooklyn life. <laughs> well, hey, Andy, um, real quick, there was something I wanted to add to what you were saying about. 68 the student riots and whatnot if i could well i just wanted to add that you know one of the best books on gladio mainly because it's not in the same sort of dry academic style it's more journalistic um than say daniel ganser's nato secret armies or jeffrey bills yeah it is a great book um the other the other really great academic one is um i believe it's called the black terrorist international by jeffrey m bill which was a 600 page dissertation that bill did under the guidance of uh peter dill scott who is one of my heroes uh Hell yeah the, he's awesome <laughs> but the book uh that i'm speaking of is puppet masters the political use of terrorism in italy by philip wylon uh and it's a very very good journalistic book there's times where i think he sort of takes angleton's side on things um i think he actually takes it as you know, he takes the FBI on their word that uh, Antonio Negri was uh, an FBI informant, which I don't trust that. But uh, Wylan talks about how uh, Euro communism uh, was seen as a very, very big threat, uh, especially in Italy, because he almost describes it as being sort of a third way. Like it's not necessarily um, totally in support of everything that is going on in the Soviet Union. Uh, so Eurocommunism is against the sort of capitalist uh, imperialists, but it also is trying to carve out a different uh, sort of niche than necessarily the Soviet Union in its own way. I guess like without getting too much into the politics of, of what was going on with um, with the left in Italy and in Europe in general, uh, there was a there was a real sense that there was going to be a compromise between the center and the left because there did begin to be this kind of like gridlock and stagnation. And that really comes to a head in the mid seventies with, uh, the, the Christian Democrat, uh, prime minister Moro, um, basically on his way to make a compromise with the communist party to create this Marxist Christian Democrat Alliance to get, to finally get things done. He's, uh, kidnapped and assassinated probably by the red brigade, which is this, uh, communist armed struggle group 
Um, but th that's really the height of what we now know as the years of lead. Um, but in 68 and 69, this is the hot autumn. This is this revolutionary moment. The middle class and the bourgeois class and the industrialists and the elite of Italy start feeling the heat of the left. And it's terrifying to them. And so they start, um, uh, you know, even though the, the original pretenses of Gladio are kind of behind them, they start conspiring to make sure that there's no chance of the left coming to power in Italy. And one of the methods that they developed was propaganda due. Propaganda was the name of a important Masonic lodge in Rome. And at some point, the, uh, the Italian intelligence agency, CIFAR, I think it's called, I don't know what it stands for, probably CIA as well, organized this group, Propaganda Due, with this guy, Licio Gelli. So Licio Gelli is a lifelong fascist. He volunteered to be a black shirt. He served in Yugoslavia. Um, he was uh, in charge of rounding up partisans in the, the north of Italy at the end of the war. And after the war, he was helping to, uh, he was helping Nazis to escape to South America for a fee, uh, something called the Rat Line. And most famously, he helped Klaus Barbie escape. But he was also a complete scumbag, uh, not just politically. And there's a, there's a pretty good chance that he was not only working for the fascists but, and the Nazis, but also for the communists. Or at least he tricked the communists into thinking he was working for the communists although it's not clear if he was, and he was certainly working for the CIA. Um, at one point, he was arrested as a fascist collaborator, as a fascist agent, and the United States treated him pretty well. And uh, Willan goes into that in, in the book, uh, Puppet Masters, that you mentioned. Well, it's, it's interesting, too, because Shelley uh, is, is a very weird character. Um, there's interviews where he claims to have blackmail on the Pope, compromising pictures, and also in 1996... He probably does. Yeah, he, <laughs> I mean he, he's dead he, now, but <laughs> right. But yeah, no, I, mm -hmm. go ahead. Pope Pius the Twelfth had a lot of skeletons in his closet. <laughs> I just gotta say. Well, I, I was gonna say uh, it's funny because Jelly was actually nominated uh, for a Nobel Prize in Literature, and he got support from Mother Teresa for that Nobel Prize. Ooh, another noted fascist. <laughs> well, you know it's it's funny too because um, in two thousand three, he he told uh, an Italian publication that it seemed the P2's so-called democratic rebirth plan was being implemented by Silvio Berlusconi. Bunga bunga. Yeah, um, we'll definitely get there. So, so Jelly had this, uh, you know, this nominable political program. Uh, he also had these documents on a lot of important figures that were given to him by Italian intelligence. Uh, so he was able to blackmail a lot of people. Uh, but he was tasked with creating this propaganda due lodge, which um, at its height had at least a thousand members. Um, and uh, I don't know, I, I think the list of about a thousand of them are public. There might be up to 2,000 of very important figures, politicians, um, fascist militants, people in the armed services, uh, you know, people from the Vatican, all walks of life were in this very creepy Masonic lodge. Um, that, you know, depending on who you ask was just, you know, another Masonic lodge. It was just a fraternity of elites, or it, it could have just been a, you know, anti-communist agency and they had no other ambition other than stopping the, the, the communists. Who runs the Gladio? We do, we do. 
Yeah, very, uh, yeah, very stonecutters ask, but way more evil. And very quickly, as a result of the of the hot uh, autumn, the 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 worker and student riots spreading in '68 and '69, uh, they're empowered to start creating coup attempts and false flag terrorist attacks. Um, the first of those was the uh, Plaza Fontana bombings in '69. That was in Turin, I believe, right? Uh, and I don't know if that was a propaganda duo operation. Um, it could have been uh, Ordinate Nero or Ordinate Nuevo. Um, New Order. Yeah. Not well, the band, the fascist group. There was a, yeah, like a fascist armed struggle group. Um, but it was, it was designed to frame the left. And indeed, and uh, anarchists were blamed for it. And one of them, at least, was, was murdered uh, by the police um, for a, a bombing that was, we now know was done by fascists. And that was in 69. And then in 70, Propaganda Due orchestrates an attempted coup. Yes, the as Borghese coup. The, the, uh, as a result of, of that, um, an, an attempt, a really, you know, now, now it's looked back on as a, a, a kind of slapstick comical attempt because they had these, uh, you know, a few hundred fascists, militants. A lot of them were part of the forestry police, like uh, the park rangers. Um, but, I, I never did trust those park rangers. But they had a plan to seize, uh, seize government buildings, uh, kidnap the prime minister, uh, seize the, the major newspapers and TV channels. And they had contacts in the CIA with uh, armed forces stationed in Malta that was supposed to back them up. In the Gasner book, there's a speculation because, as Andy said, this coup is seen as kind of a joke or a farce now, but that might in and of itself be some sort of like weird propaganda because, according to Gasner, there are people within Italy who said that uh, Borghese, this straight-up fascist, again, who's doing this coup, got a phone call at a certain point in the night of this coup, nobody knows who it was from, where his forces stood down, and the sources say that he got a call directly from Richard Nixon's White House. Wow. So that right there, it may, it may be that they're gaslighting us into thinking this wasn't real, and actually there was going to be this fascist coup directly supported by the United States. But whether or not it was meant to succeed, um, it, it sent a message to the left to remind them of what they already knew, which was like, yeah, the left is stronger than ever. Um, you're riding in the streets, but you're never going to take power. You're also and, doing direct workers' power in the factories. You're doing auto reductions, which right. is like forcibly not paying for services and expropriations. It was a it was a mass movement of like young workers and students. And of course, at the center of the struggle is the auto industry, especially Fiat. And we now know Fiat was funding a lot of these operations. The fascist um, operations. But what I really want to get to is, is what I know the most about, which is the connection between Propaganda Due and Operation Condor, specifically in Argentina. Uh, so uh, Licio Gelli, uh, after, um, after the war, spent some time in Argentina. He made some connections with Perón. So I got to go. I'm going to try to be quick about this because I could talk about Perón for hours. Essentially, Juan Perón was this... Um, he, he was in the Argentine military in the ski corps, actually. And in 38, between, between the skiers and the forestry guys, I don't know who to trust. Right. Yeah. Out, outdoorsiness is not so uh, not so innocent. That's why you got to be in the cities online right. and in the cafe. You never stop posting so you don't become a skiing fascist. 
So Perone goes to Italy and Germany uh, as like kind of an exchange program for Argentina, which is still officially neutral in the war as the war begins uh, in 39 and 40. And he meets Nazi and uh, Italian fascist officers. He sees how society is being organized, and he really likes it. He's very impressed by it. He's not a very political person, but he comes back to Argentina in 1940 believing that the Axis powers are absolutely going to win the war. He's like, you've got one position, which is capitalism, another position, which is fascism. What about, or communism, what about a third position? Well, he doesn't even, he hasn't even developed a third position yet. Okay, sorry. He's just a, he's just a military functionary. And he comes back to uh, Argentina and forms a secret society within the armed forces called the United Officers Group, the GOU. And they decide we need to take power from this like centrist, uh, you know, regime that nobody really likes, and align Argentina with the with the Axis powers. And they have their coup uh, towards the uh, the middle of 1943. But by the time they have their coup, which is you know a very successful bloodless coup, the war is already turned, so they're not able to immediately uh, ally with the Axis powers. Stalingrad has already happened. Um, Italy's been invaded. Uh, and so they have to kind of... They, so, so basically they've taken over the country and nobody really likes them because they, they start imposing these like draconian censorship laws. They start repressing the left. Um, they they empower the the Catholic Church in a super regressive way over education, and the only person in the um, in within the coup who realizes what a bad situation they're in is Perón, and what he figures out as a way to make the coup more popular uh, is to basically become the arbiter of of labor uh, struggle, and give all the power to the right wing of the Central Union Argentina, the CGT, in a very conspicuous way. So he goes into a strike situation, and he negotiates on behalf of the workers. He gives the workers everything they want in exchange for putting the, uh, the union under Perón's control. So he becomes vastly popular with the working class by the time the war is over, and at the very end of the war, Argentina aligns with the Allies, um, and they they call for new elections. But they know Perón is going to win because the working class loves him, the CGT loves him. Um, but the the middle class and the elites hate Perón, uh, and also the left hates Perón too because they believe he's a fascist, and uh, they're not entirely wrong. But the but the vast majority of the working class loves him. He's also got the Catholic Church on his side. And this is where he starts to, to develop these third position ideas. Uh, so there's an election in 46. Perón basically governs as a dictator um, until uh, between 46 and 55. And also the economy is incredible in Argentina because the economy in Europe is ruined. And Argentina has incredible uh, land for growing wheat, for growing beef, um, for light industry. And so he uses that to his advantage, um, inc- industrializing the country, giving people free education, uh, incredible like uh, social projects. His wife is seen as this like saintly figure. He and married Madonna when she was really young. And basically, 
uh, Perón is like this god figure for the proletariat of Argentina. But as the economy starts to stabilize in Europe and it turns around, uh, the elite are finally like, all right, enough of this, enough of this dude. They overthrow him in 55 and they send him into exile in Franco's Spain. Now, the, uh, the chief of security for him in Spain is this guy named Lopez Rega. Uh, now called El Brujo, or the Warlock. <laughs> um, and so, Rega, uh, at some point in uh, the late 60s, becomes a member of Propaganda Due. He's not the only person in Perón's clique who be, who's a member of Propaganda Due. He's the most important one. Um, he's also a, practicer, a practitioner of, a spir- of Espiritismo, which is kind of like an Argentine variety of like voodoo or Santeria or Candomblé. But in Argentina, at least his version of it was particularly white nationalist because he believed essentially that uh, the Argentine race is like a very special race because it's, you know, especially in Buenos Aires, it's mostly white, mostly European, with just like a little bit of mestizo influence. Um, And he thinks that that's perfect. Because like you're you're 95 white, you're a little bit indigenous, so you have that blood and soil thing, that that legitimate blood and soil thing, and he sees Perón not as not a, my witchcraft. He sees Peronism not as a political movement, but basically the religion of Argentina. He sees Peronism as a deeply spiritual, uh, even occult uh, faith, like Caesar, like the sun god, essentially, right? And he believes also as part of um, this faith in, a, in like Argentina Spiritismo, that Perón needs to be returned to Argentina, and also the left believes this too. Like the, the by the mid '60s, the left is engaging in the same kind of like armed struggle, guerrilla, uh, like an urban insurrection, as yeah. everywhere else in Latin America. Focoismo, uh, inspired by Guevara, but they're all united behind this demand of Perón Vuelve because Perón is so popular in the working class that it's it's taken over the radical left and the radical right. So Lopez Rega basically um, hatches this plot to not only return Perón back to power, but to destroy the Peronist left, which is a very complicated thing to do because the the, the base of, of the movement to bring Perón back against the elites who hate him so much is the students... Uh, the working class and the CGT, and the, the Peronist youth. So, so he finds an ally to do this in Propaganda Due. A, a lot of the members of it, like Jelly, are, are fascists, uh, but they're also business people. They, they also, like, Jelly, for instance, was a, a mattress manufacturer, uh, but hidden under his mattress was a, a tangled web of, uh, of connections with, uh, like, this, this web of of like shady capitalists all over the world that are trying to set up their own supply networks. And Argentina is a very important part of this chain, as is, as is Chile, as is Brazil. So Operation Condor, which was the coordinated anti-communist dictatorships in the south of South America and elsewhere in Latin America, was not only this political revulsion to communism aided by the CIA, but also this network of, of international capitalists that wanted to protect their interests. And also, they had their own conspiracy theory, which is synarchism. They believe that the Jews, communists, and you know whatever rival secret societies they believed in, 
They were all in it together. It's basically the same thing Hitler believed in with like, you know, the Jews and the, the, the West are capitalists and in the East they're communists. Um, but basically they thought that the entirety of the left is just part of this central Zionist cabal. Uh, so what Rega does as the, um, as the head of Perón's security is he, first of all, he red pills Perón on this cynicism conspiracy theory. Um, Perón was never particularly fond of the left. Perón, I mean, you know, it's always hard to, like, pin down exactly what Perón believes, but certainly he was not the ideological fascist that Rego was. But since he believed in the cynicist idea that basically, like, the sovereignty of Argentina was under threat by this cabal of Marxists and Jews, he was very able to manipulate. And... Rego was able to do this uh, two ways. One was gaining a lot of influence over Perón's new wife, uh, Isabel Perón, who was, um, you know, Ava was this like kind of B actress who had was like incredibly charismatic and beloved by the people. Isabel Perón was just kind of a nightclub dancer who had no real speaking ability or charisma, no political knowledge or anything. Um, but Rega convinced her that she literally had the spirit of Ava Perone in her body. And the way that he did this was exhuming Ava Perone's corpse, bringing it to Spain, where Perone was in exile, laying her corpse with Isabel head-to-head, and performing this espirit- espiritismo ritual cool. to transfer Ava's spirit into Isabel Perone's body. I'd like to be a fly on that wall. And by all indications, Isabel Perone and Juan Perone believed this. Oh, yeah. And so... Uh, Juan Perón returns. So, so uh, a a Peron, a, a left Peronist, Hector Campora, is elected in in seventy three, and um, changes the law so Perón can come back to Argentina for the first time since fifty five. The moment he comes back, there's this huge welcoming ceremony at the the airport outside of Buenos Aires, um, and the left marches in some of them are armed but they're lightly armed they march in to take the center stage but lopez rega is in charge of security for the event so he tells uh he basically orchestrates the whole thing so it turns into this massacre uh not only to kill a lot of members of the the revolutionary tendency of the peronist movement but also to to convince peron that the left is crazy and that he has to to stop them after this massacre campora uh, resigns, allows Perón to run for president. Perón, of course, wins massively. But the massacre also has this effect of convincing the a large part of the revolutionary tendency that for years had fought this armed struggle against the elite and against the imperialists to allow P- Perón to come back, that there is a fascist coup within the Peronist uh, administration. And so they were going to continue their armed struggle against the right wing of Peronism. And right before uh, Perón's inauguration in 73, they assassinate um, the right-wing leader of the CGT, who Perón deeply loved and admired. And that convinced him that he was going to be next. Uh, or not, not him, but actually Isabel or López Rega were going to be next. So he empowers López Rega to start this group called the Anti-Communist Alliance, the AAA, which was a deeply fascist group. They, were, they loved Hitler. They're deeply anti-Semitic, deeply homophobic, and they drew up this list of like every communist in the country uh, with a desire to kill them. Um, 
And again, this was what propaganda duet did. Uh, go ahead, Sean. I just want to tie I, this into Can I add something that? there real quick? Uh, yeah, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, isn't it interesting how they always use uh, anti-communist instead of like, we hate Jewish people? Um, <laughs> yeah, no, like you, you think about, I was telling someone the other day, uh, you know, when the skinheads uh, wanted to sort of do their skinhead music, they would say they were rock against communism, right, which is right. like the lamest cover ever for their like neo-Nazi politics. Yeah, and, and to, to put this into the broader context, and I think this is what's very, very important about this history, when we, by the time we get to the 1960s and the 1970s, you have a sort of continuation coming out of the Second World War and these destroyed Nazi and fascist regimes, a, what is essentially fascist international that is subsidized and supported by the United States and other Western powers that has its bases in things like propaganda due in Italy, the regime of the generals in Greece, the Grey Wolf faction in Turkey, of course, the South African government, and also that power bleeds into Operation Condor throughout the entirety of South America, which are fascist-inspired movements with paramilitary organizations, with a political vision of right-wing dictatorship destroying the left and clamping down on workers and peasants. You have, essentially, a CIA-sponsored fascist international that exists by this time. And this goes a long way towards showing why, one of the reasons why, this leftist upsurge of the 1960s and 1970s collapses or is at least beaten back because the powers that be, the international bourgeoisie and, of course, the bourgeois state internationally is able to marshal these forces that are directly inspired by Mussolini, by Hitler, and in many cases have the same people that were around at that time involved in them. I was going to say, uh, in, in addition to that, um, when we talk about Peronism and, and fascism and sort of this idea of the third position it's really interesting because there's so many precursors to it uh, from sort of national Bolshevism and uh, what's been called Strasserism. Um, oh, we've seen them founded. posting. We know them online. Yeah. <laughs> Otto and Gregor Strasser. That, that's a real thing, though. I mean, me no, aside. Sure. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. I mentioned Francis Parker Yockey earlier. Um, and that sort of ties into the Peronism stuff because Yockey advocated for an alliance between communists and fascists, um, the Red-Brown Alliance, essentially. And uh, he thought, again, that uh, Stalin's purges in Prague were uh, a sign that, uh, you know, Stalin had become anti-Jewish and was now, you know, on the side of the fascists. So you have a lot of this syncretism going on um, preceding and after, uh, you know, the whole... Uh, issue of Peronism. I mean, I mean, now we see it in things like the works of um, Alexander Dugan, uh, the fourth political theory, which says, oh, we're not left or right, which is really just a way of saying you're a fascist. Listen, we have to choose between Eurasianism and Atlanticism. That's what Dugan tells us. And we're, we're forced to, to make that choice. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you that there's like, there are these different, uh, these predecessors and these contemporary examples of third positionism. Peronism is something kind of unique because uh, although he certainly had his fascist sympathies, it, it really was a little bit more sincere. Like, uh, and, and that's why today the left of Argentina 
is really sub- still subsumed into a kind of neo-Peronism. Um, and, you know, the, the fascist, fascists in Argentina are also kind of still, like, Peronism still dominates, like, the wide uh, variety of political tendencies in Argentina. And also, the fascists that come to power, like the neo-fascists, that, that, uh, like, like Jelly and, uh, you know, Berlusconi um, and Pinochet, like, they all basically are, you know, believe in kind of like neoliberal ideology, uh, like the like Pinochet like brought in the Chicago Boys, right? Like it, it's not, it wasn't like a, a a real like it wasn't like like Strasserism kind of had that that socialist element. Yeah, it was more corporatist, but yeah, it had- M- Mussolini had a corporatist element. Um, no, Strasser was not corporatist actually. They were neo feudalist. Uh, but but basically, there's like there's different conceptions of fascism. But I think was is really important is that, that the kind of post-war order that was ushered in through these like uh, you know through the 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 centrist powers uh, like De Gaulle is another example of, mm-hmm. of sort of a third position figure. This, this post-war order combines liberalism with the corporatism of fascism to integrate um, the workers' movement into the state against the left. This is absolutely crucial. When I mentioned uh, the Marshall Plan and when I mentioned the post-war order, it's very important to note again that in this post-war period, the workers' movement, the official workers' movement for 25, 30 years up until the 60s and 70s, it was crucial that that be integrated into state and economic uh, functions. That the workers' movement, which had been radical, which had been militant, be subsumed under this and serve this purpose of increasing demand uh, economic demand, and of course, uh, creating stability throughout these countries who had seen so much war. So this this whole order is based on this sort of top-down state-centric uh, power that cannot allow any dissent from it, that cannot allow militancy on the factory floor, cannot allow students to be in the streets, can't even allow anti-imperialism, really. So what you start to see is this consensus break down in the period that we're talking about and you start to see things like Operation Condor and increasingly the kind of leading edge of Gladio as this reaction, this 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 pushback against these changes in society and the economy. It's the continuing threat of dictatorship. Uh, you know, they'll they'll go the parliamentary route if they have to, they'll resort to elect- electoral fraud if they have to. Uh, they'll do false flag terrorist attacks, which was the strategy of tension, you know, really culminating in 1980 in the, the Bologna station bombing, always in, searching for a pretext to have a military dictatorship. They were supposed to force these people, the Italian public, to turn to the state to ask for greater security. This is the political logic that lies behind all the massacres and the bombings, which remain unpunished because the state cannot convict itself or declare itself responsible for what happened. The strategy of tension is these spectacular terrorist attacks blamed on the left that are forcing the public of Italy and elsewhere to come closer to the right wing or the fascist position as a very clear-eyed political move on the on the part of these uh, forces in order to clamp down on civil society and the left in general. And just to... Just to round up what happened in Argentina, so uh, Perón gives the green light to the AAA to basically protect him, and Perón almost immediately dies. And his wife, Isabel, with the spirit of, of Eva Perón, takes over, and she doesn't know what she's doing. So she gives power to Rega and his, his coterie, 
and they don't know what they're doing either. So the economy almost immediately collapses. And there, there's this general strike called, this uh, multi-day general strike. And they use the general strike as a pretext for taking power in Argentina. The AAA comes into power as a national reorganization process. They ban Marxist literature. They begin rounding up every known communist in the country. And by the time that uh, the dictatorship falls after the Falkland Wars, in a span of about six years, they disappear or basically kill an unknown number of leftists, but about 30,000. You know, things never got that bad in Italy in terms of, like, just political genocide. But in 79 in Italy, as a way to clamp down on the, uh, the autonomous worker movement, they round up, I don't know, several thousand leftists, and almost all of them go to prison for about a year. And that really kills the revolutionary left in Italy. Moving into the 80s, when they basically the left regenerates around the PSI, which moves in like a Labour Party direction under under cracks. Um, so basically, like one way or another, they figured out how to totally destroy the left, even in places like Argentina and in Italy, where they were vastly popular and were winning elections. Uh, that's basically the end of my spiel. Well, I, I wanted to add to this conversation in terms of the strategy of tension. Um, I think Emmanuel Severino, um, who's a very popular uh, philosophy professor in Italy, has sort of summed it up best in, in a, an Italian publication from January 1985. He says, terrorism does not unleash a destructive power capable of overthrowing our social system, but enough to maintain it under constant pressure. Because it proposes, and well, he says that the Communist Party represents a threat to that stability because it proposes the renewal of society in the most radical and unpredictable way. So in Italy, you have these left-wing terror attacks. You have these right-wing terror attacks. Uh, what does that create? It creates a sort of destabilization. And the strategy of tension dictates that if you create enough of that destabilization with, say, the Bologna massacre, the train station bombing, what happens is you get people that will support uh, a strengthening of the state, of the surveillance society in Italy. People will start running towards uh, more and more state control. Um, and that may uh, affect the neo-fascists, but it also affects the left. Um, and that strategy of tension is a way of basically... Uh, disarming the left's ability to bring about radical change in society. When Gladio comes out, because around 1990, right, the existence of these stay-behind networks that are populated by right-wing fascists who are doing false flag terror attacks, and also in places like Greece and Turkey, cooing entire governments on behalf of NATO, on behalf of the CIA, on behalf of basically capitalist power. When this comes out, and it does in Italy, and actually a fun little fact, the day after uh, Gladio spills onto the pages of Italian uh, newspapers in uh, 1990, is the, the day after is the day that Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait. So by a happenstance of history, this humongous story about like government interference in democracy, illegal actions by the United States and by NATO, false flags, terrorists, the uh, Gladio in Italy killing almost 500 
innocent civilians, injuring 1,200 innocent civilians, and 14,000 independent acts of political violence during this period of the strategy of tension. The whole story gets kind of swept aside, and we don't really hear about it that much in the United States. It's very important in Europe. And I think leftists still see this as a sort of main sort of, um, you know, conspiracy theory, if you will. But one fun fact is that this NATO influence and its ability to subvert democracy was so powerful that in the 1970s, the Green Berets of the United States and uh, basically the special forces of Great Britain were training right-wing terrorists in order to be part of this Gladio network. And the Swiss, right, who are a neutral country, found out that their people, their special forces, right, who were not even part of NATO, had been brought to Northern Ireland in the 1970s and as training been brought to actually attack uh, the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. And it was a huge scandal in, in Switzerland at this time because Swiss uh, military people with no knowledge of their government, no knowledge at the time, had basically been killing IRA members as a way to train to do these counter-guerrilla operations against communists. That's how far it went, is that Swiss soldiers were killing IRA lads in, uh, in, in Belfast. It was insane. Well, you know, I'm, I'm curious, uh, maybe before we wrap up, bringing this back around to the CIA. Uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of people that research Gladio pretty in depth, uh, people like Tom Secker, uh, who's a very good researcher, um, along with a few others. And it seems like a lot of the connections between NATO and the CIA uh, can be very murky. Um, we do know, however, that Angleton was in Italy uh, during the time of, of Gladio. He had sort of been disgraced within the CIA uh, and had gone to Italy again. What do you guys think about the connection to the CIA when it comes to Gladio? Because as I said, looking at uh, a character like Angleton or uh, the Dulles brothers, given how anti-communist and Cold Warrior these types were, I could see how they would end up being involved in Gladio, especially Angleton, uh, who some believe is an architect within the Gladio operation in Italy. I certainly believe, just like the sort of uh, disconnect between the CIA and the FBI that, you know, led to basically these terrorists on 9-11 being able to blow up these towers, that the U.S. government, along with all other governments, is not very efficient. And I certainly don't believe that the CIA and NATO were working hand in glove. You know, they have different interests, different power bases. But that said, based on the evidence that I've seen and based on some speculation, too, I have to imagine that there was some sort of division of labor between the CIA as the sort of political arm of U.S. hegemony on the one hand, and NATO and military intelligence and intelligences all over Europe being the sort of paramilitary part of this. And this gets down to the, the strategy of tension and like what's behind that and who's directing that and what's the point of this. I am very comfortable in saying that when NATO, when the United States and Great Britain and when others set up these paramilitary networks that are staffed by rabid fascists and or right-wingers, that they don't have to actually control them directly and be giving them the orders in order to do the Plaza Fontana bombing, right? To blow up trains in Italy, uh, or even to uh, do terrorist attacks in Belgium, as they did too. I think once these forces are unleashed, unleashed, and these forces were unleashed at this time, 
it sort of takes on a mind of its own and you now have fascists with uh, an interest in making sure that the left is discredited and can't get into power with arms caches, you know, with easy access to C4 and with easy access to machine guns. And I don't think it takes, you know, William Colby to like call up a member of Gladio and say, all right, at 2 p.m. you're going to, you know, go uh, do this massacre in the square there. I think it's much more fluid than that. And I think it's kind of setting the stage for these acts of violence to happen uh, in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, I, well, I was going to say real quick, um, it's similar to uh, what Gary Webb was talking about in Dark Alliance. A lot of people want to paint Gary Webb as having said in his journalistic investigation of uh, the crack epidemic in L.A. and its connection to Iran-Contra. A lot of people want to say that Gary Webb was saying the CIA was trafficking drugs. That was maybe implied once or twice within the series. But his main point was that the CIA looked the other way when it came to drug traffickers that were supporting the Contras. Uh, because, you know, during the Reagan years, we were all for supporting the Contras against the left-wing forces in South America. Um, so even something as simple as that can get turned into a, uh, oh, the CIA is in total control of it, when sometimes it can be a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah, I mean, uh, you, you have to take it example by example. Like, like, for example, in Chile, there's a lot of documents that just show after the election of Allende, the, the CIA or the State Department saying, like, we need to get rid of these figures and we're going to do it in this way. That doesn't mean that they initiated the coup themselves. They basically just jumbled the conditions to an extent that it could, like, the, the, the elements that were loyal to them or that they favored could take power. And I think Italy is a good example of, and Gladio is really a good example of, of them just saying, if we just leave Italy to its own devices, it's going to go communist one way or another. So what we're going to do is leave these stockpiles of weapons all around the country, uh, fund a bunch of ex-fascists and, uh, and uh, like sinister figures, uh, as they did all over Italy, have them report to us, and just let them take things the way that they want to take them. And that led to these, the strategy of tension, these false flag terrorist attacks, but of course, we can't just blame the CIA on all, on everything. We also just can't blame the right on everything on the right. Of course, the the Red Brigades were a real group that wasn't completely a false flag operation, uh, as were you know as as were there was like a, a large amount of of leftist armed struggle, um, and uh, you know the right wing in 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 Latin America also was uh, in many ways organic and and could take power on their own. And the CIA kind of just greased the wheels to make sure it could happen. So we have to resist these kind of didactic worldviews of it's just imperialism versus national sovereignty or something like that, because that is essentially like the, the synarchist worldview in a sense. And that leads to like just a different kind of anti-imperialist conspiracy theorizing. Don't be a brujo. Do not be a brujo. <laughs> Joe, did you have something? Yeah, there was... Uh... One more thing I wanted to add since, and I think Andy mentioned it earlier, uh, uh, there's another figure that ties into this whole story who uh, it gets a little bit murky uh, knowing where he stood on things because of his death. But uh, I wanted to get into uh, Pierre Pasolini for a second. Is that okay? Uh, yes. Yeah, this is a good we way. Love his film. This is a good way to end it, actually. 
because uh, that letter, I think, kind of summarizes the, the difficulty of talking about this stuff. Before we go into Pasolini and his wonderful films, I just want to kind of branch off what Andy said, was talking about, the kind of fluidity uh, of these structures that are set up. I mentioned the Mafia earlier, and uh, for good reason. I also mentioned uh, the Vatican as well. And that's not because, you know, like some people would say about the assassination of JFK, that organized crime is the motor of all of this. Or that, as a right winger would say, that pedophilic priests are the motor of these grand conspiracies that are real and exist. It's because organized crime in Italy and elsewhere in the diaspora has a has material interests that are very similar to the CIA or very similar to even the capitalist class in general. They want order and they want a good environment for doing business. They are inherently conservative and reactionary. And also like the CIA, they exist subterranean, subterraneanally, I guess. <laughs> they exist like under, under the surface and are able to infiltrate these different parts of society. Same thing with the Vatican. And again, I'm not saying that your local parish priest is uh, you know, working for the CIA right now, although that's entirely possible. You should see if he's in Epstein's book. If he is, then uh, I don't know, you might want to call somebody. But with the Vatican after the uh, Second World War, with these rat lines that were mentioned, the Vatican, various actors within that had an interest in opposing communism and in many cases helping ex-Nazis or right-wingers not only escape from the Allies, escape justice, but also set themselves up as an anti-communist bulwark. So again, this is not to say that the Mafia or the Vatican were like uh, intricate in planning all of these things. It's only to say that we need to look at these nexuses that exist between state power, capitalist power, and all of these different actors that exist in a subterranean capacity across the globe, especially if they're international, like the Mafia and the Vatican. Well, you know, that's a good tie-in to Pasolini because uh, Pasolini had an interest in Catholicism. And I, I think it's worth noting um, with regards to the Vatican, its relation to P2, uh, it's very interesting because there's always been a schism within the church after World War II, you have these sort of traditionalist reactionaries and then the sort of uh, liberation theology uh, Jesuit types who are more uh, trying to push the church left wing. Um, there's a lot of people that believe that Pope John Paul I, who had a very short reign in power at the Vatican, was uh, murdered. Uh, because he was pushing the church too much leftward and the reactionary elements within the church were not a fan of that. That's in the great investigative work In God's Name by David Yallop. Uh, but I digress. I, I wanted to talk about Pasolini because he's one of the most interesting filmmakers of you know the sort of Italian cinema in the mid-20th century. I'm a big fan of his movies, as am I. Well, yeah, it's it's interesting because I think most people, uh, especially edgelords, know him for the movie Sallow or the 120 Days of Sodom. Listen, best, best butthole scene of any movie I've ever seen. Um, uh, it's pornography or otherwise, just the amazing shots of buttholes in Sallow. Well, it, it's an interesting film, though, in a way. I mean, as hard as it is to watch because he's um, <clears throat> he's basically dealing with fascism. 
and sort of viewing it from this almost weird Wilhelm Reichian sort of lens uh, where fascism is psychosexual pathology. Uh, he also did the gospel according to St. Matthew, which uh, basically reinterprets Christianity uh, as communism. So he's a very interesting figure, an actor, a journalist, a novelist, a playwright. And uh, he was very interested in politics. He dies a very mysterious sort of death in November of 1975 on the beach uh, at Ostia. And it's kind of weird because his case has been opened and closed and reopened again. Uh, It was initially thought that a lover had killed him, a young boy, because Pasolini was uh, homosexual. Uh, But since then, the case has been reopened. Um, A lot of people have some very conspiratorial thoughts on Pasolini's death. But near the time of his death, he was increasingly reporting more and more on issues related to these things like Gladio. Um, And before I get to his letter, he actually was interviewed by... Forio Colombo. It was the last interview Pasolini ever conducted. And what he said to Colombo in this interview was, we are all in danger. Uh, He was very, very paranoid, in other words, at this time. And I'd like to read just a little bit from this piece he wrote. What is this coup? I know. Pasolini writes, I know. I know the names of those responsible for what has been called a coup, but what is actually a series of coups carried out to ensure the security of power. I know the names of those responsible for the Mylon massacre on December 12, 1969. I know the names of those responsible for the massacres in Brescia and Bologna in early 1974. I know the names of the committee that manipulated the old fascists into actualizing the coups. The names of the neo-fascists who carried out the first massacres, and finally, those of the unknown authors of the most recent massacres. And this is where it gets uh, really interesting. I know the names of those who directed the two different yet opposite phases of the tension strategy. First, the anti-communist phase, Milano, 1969, and then the second, anti-fascist phase, Brescia and Bologna, 1974. I know the names of that group of powerful men who, with the help of the CIA and then by the Greek colonels of the mafia, first created, yet failing miserably, an anti-communist crusade to halt the 68 movement and then, always with the help and inspiration of the CIA, they've reconstituted an anti-fascist virginity so as to stall the disaster of the referendum. Uh, He keeps going on for a while He keeps saying that he knows who is behind this coup, not because uh, he has some special knowledge, but because he's an intellectual and he increasingly gets paranoid uh, throughout this whole spiel. And it's led a lot of people to wonder if maybe Pasolini had uh, angered some of the wrong people. So maybe that's a little bit too conspiratorial. I, I try to you know, I mean, reasoned th- about these things, but <laughs> the way I read that kind of turn in the letter where he says, I know the names, but I don't really know the names. I forgot how he put it. Um, it is basically that he's like, look, I'm an intellectual. I'm a writer. I create narratives. That's what I do for a living. I know that something's going on here, but I'm not actually in power. So he ends the letter calling for 
people in the uh, in in government to come clean and say what's actually going on. And he's completely correct that there are thousands of people in Italy. You know, there are people in Propaganda Due who are part of PSI, probably not PCI, but but PSI. but pe- people were part of. They, they were like nominal socialists in Propaganda Due, or and at least there's people in PCI that knew what was going on. There's people in the Vatican that knew what was going on. And he said, "I'm just a writer. You know, I I can see like the story here, but I don't know. I don't have any actual evidence. So please, just tell us what's going on." And, um, you know, his art was trying to express these things, and Salo was trying to express these things. And a lot of people think that Salo, you know, was why he was killed, because he was getting a little bit too close to revealing the truth. We don't know that. But especially when, you know, when, when we're, we're talking about Epstein so much now, and we are starting to learn the names of the players in this, like, Epstein network, and we're starting to, you know, there's been some talk on your show and on Chapo as well about this domestic gladio of like right-wing propagandists and uh, you know, right-wing paramilitaries. And you mentioned at the beginning of the show, the, like the fascist groups that are being mysteriously armed once again in Europe. Um, and something that looks kind of like a new strategy attention to, to scare people into demanding more governance to demanding, you know, QAnon, for example, is this movement that just demands dictatorship against the chaos of modern society. Instead of falling victim to these narratives, the, this con- conspiracism that you mentioned before, we have to try to be very clear-eyed and careful and recognize that we can't just let one narrative of, like, pedophilic elites or something like that or, uh, you know, a secret fascist Strasreich cabal or something. We can't go too far down that road we have to try to stay in the realm of what i like to call parapolitics of understanding that there are a parallel hidden political uh structure that does influence what we see but the best that we can do is try to understand it through a, a worldview based in uh, a material understanding an economic understanding of like what kind of interests these people have, but I, I really uh, appreciate that. I think that you, uh, your show, and our show are kind of on the same page of of trying to probe this uh, these conspiracy things, these parapolitical things, without becoming conspiracy theorists. Well, I, I wanted to add something to that real quick, and I, I know we're running short on time, so I'll make it as uh, quick as possible. But um, you know, one of the first people I interviewed, um, not for Parallax Views, but actually uh, the Zero Books show alternatives was a uh, professor eric wilson who uh wrote a book a while back called the republic of cthulhu in which he uh well it's it's interesting because he ties conspiracy theory and cthulhu uh together and you know it's an interesting book because uh eric is close friends with uh peter dill scott who we mentioned earlier and he sort of views peter dill scott as this almost um lovecraftian protagonist who uh, has looked too deep into the parapolitical realm and has uh, generally been very negatively affected by it. Um, I I used to correspond a bit with Peter and I know he has a lot of trauma from some of the things he covered involving uh, Indochina and uh, the heroin trade. So sometimes going down parapolitics 
You know, I get why people end up with a conspiratorial worldview. Because I think, you know, once you know a few things, you start developing uh, what we're now calling Epstein brain. But you also have to be a little bit resistant to that, because sometimes you don't come out on the right side of it. So to speak. 